Again, free thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, guys, this week we had award winning journalist Ben Swan join us on the show. And I have to mention, first off, that this interview was brought to you today by a whole lot of persistence. Why, you ask? Well, over the years, Ben's work has been truly inspiring to not only my own journey in this news media world, but in many ways, our work with the Free Thought Project has paralleled Ben's work with Truth and Media. And that's why it was important for us to have Ben on the show and talk to him about his ups and downs in his two decades as a journalist. Now, as you will hear in the interview, Ben is an incredibly busy guy. So it took nearly a year of the squeaky wheel strategy to finally get him on our podcast. However, perseverance paid off and the wait was well worth it. Now, during our conversation with Ben, we discussed the reason behind his social media hiatus after his infamous Pizzagate coverage. We then spent a significant amount of time talking about his recent 14-part January 6th docuseries that was truly fascinating And both myself and Matt were floored to see just how coordinated the January 6th event was by intelligence agencies. And of course, Ben's docuseries did one hell of a job exposing it all. Now, towards the end of the show, we discussed Ben's vision with his social media platform, Sovereign, and ended the show with a delicious white pill. So please, guys, don't forget to like, subscribe, review, and share this interview But for now, here's our conversation with award-winning journalist, Ben Swan. Hey, Ben. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Well, first of all, I just wanted to apologize to your team or at least Sam and Reed over there. I feel like I've been harassing you guys for at least a year now to get you on the podcast. But uh, here you are, and we're honored to have you on the show. Uh, I know you've been working hard on the new January 6th docuseries with Lara Logan for Truth and Media, and I'm certainly excited to talk about that today. But our work has had some overlap over the years. You know, the Free Thought Project and your organization, Truth and Media, are both pioneers in this digital alternative media landscape. And uh, we've even crossed paths a few times. I I know once in 2018 at a Freedom Conference in San Diego, more recently at the Rage Against the War Machine in DC earlier this year. And I believe at one point we were both sponsored by uh, Dash Cryptocurrency as well. That's right. Yeah. Recently, you've you've been doing great things with Sovereign. Uh, You were kind enough to feature me and my work on your social media platform which I also wanted to talk about today. But Ben, as I'd mentioned, we've been doing this for a long time and you've been doing it for even longer. And some of your earliest viral clips of you dismantling narratives on Fox 19 or or CBS 46 were very inspiring. Uh, Definitely had an influence on my own desire to get in this world. But with that said, you eventually departed from the local legacy media affiliates and you went independent with your truth and media project Now, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I think most people assume that transition happened largely after you were fired from CBS for talking about the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And with all the Epstein revelations and and more recently, the ABC reporter, James Gordon Meek, who, you know, he tried to tie the Pizzagate uh, conspiracy to Russian propaganda and he, he made claims trying to debunk the whole thing. Well, he was recently arrested and charged with uh, child pornography charges and sentenced to six years in prison. Uh, you can't make this stuff up, right? 
It's incredible. So, I mean, obviously these are just a, a couple of examples, but at the time your reporting was criticized as this far out conspiracy theory. So do you feel any sense of vindication from all the information that has surfaced since you parted ways with CBS? Oh, well, I mean, that's a great question. Um, let me, let me clarify a couple of things. So first is, um, a lot of people do believe that I was actually fired over Pizzagate. I actually was not fired over Pizzagate. Um, but what people don't know is I actually stayed with the station for a year after that. Uh, and the reason people don't know that is because I really became the first journalist to be removed from social media, even before Alex Jones was kicked yep. off of yep. social media. Mm -hmm. And the reason that was, is because it didn't happen through the social media companies. It happened through my bosses at CBS 46. They were the ones who actually forced me off um, social media after Pizzagate. And it was a result of covering Pizzagate. And so what people don't realize is that um, I was actually continued to be the main anchor for CBS in Atlanta uh, for another year after that. I still anchored all of their primetime newscasts. I was still on billboards across the city. I was still doing everything I had done before. I just could not be on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram couldn't be on anything. Ah. Um, and so the reason that's significant is because for me, that was my biggest awakening. I had a lot of awakenings over the years, and there's not even enough time in this podcast to run through all of them. <laughs> but my one of my biggest ones had to have been that when, when my bosses called me in and wanted to basically either terminate me or remove me from social media, and they couldn't really terminate me, they said, you know, we'll, we'll keep you here, but... We're gonna, you gotta shut down all your social media platforms. All of them, can't be on any social media. Now that's crazy, think about that. What you're saying to the, the anchor of the CBS station in the eighth largest TV market in the country, yeah. you cannot be on social media at a time when that's the most important thing that stations look for in their talent is that they have a strong social media following. I have had since 2012, the largest social media following of any uh, local news anchor in the country, right? And yeah. it was, unbelievable the the numbers that we were doing and we were doing this all the way back in 2012 2013 at, at a time when very few people had uh, massive followings on facebook and instagram certainly not in the news world um i had a larger following than most network news anchors had mm -hmm. and so they were saying you can't be here and i was like this is crazy why would they do this and it took me a while to figure out what was going on which is that the the orders that were coming down to them from washington dc coming down to them from the network up in new york um, were instructions to say, we don't care if this guy is on air. What we care about is whether or not he's online. And, and that was one of the big inspirations for me to start Sovereign as a platform, um, was to recognize that that's the real battleground. The real battleground is online. It has nothing to do with what's coming across your TV because either people believe it or don't believe it or it's, it's, it's increasingly irrelevant is the point. Social media was not, certainly not in 2016, 2017. 2018, right? It was a very significant time. And historically, if you go through the history of it, historically, what you'll find is I believe that was the most critical time because that is the moment, 2016, 2017, 2018, that was the time when social media completely changed. Mm -hmm. It was when the Media Matters of America, uh, of the world, the George Soros's of the world, uh, a lot of these, these strong players in the deep state realized that that was the real battleground. The battleground was not on television anymore. It wasn't in movies. It wasn't in Hollywood. This is where there was a real um, insurgency of thought taking place. Free thought, right? Um, and so what we see is that during that time, that's when you started to see, after it happened to me and I was gone for a year, you know, I, I came back on my own. I, I basically put my head down and try to figure out how am I going to protect my family? How am I going to take care of my family? And then spent one year devising a plan, coming up with a way to do it, and then came out, thanks to Dash, uh, and working with cryptocurrency, was able to basically tell my bosses, you guys are in violation of my contract. You're in violation of the terms we have. Uh, and I just said, I actually didn't even quit. I just said, I'm going back online because these are the terms of the contract. And then they said, okay, let, let's think about it. And I, as I left the building, they called me on the phone and said, actually, you're fired. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, it was real cowardly the way they did it, but that's okay. I mean, it's all good. So the point in, in saying that is to say that, um, for me, the, the, the recognition was, this is where the battle was taking place. Um, and, and then, you know, knowing I have a, some really good friends before the Pizzagate story ran and, and anybody here who has not seen it, um, you know, it's still on YouTube. You can still find it. You can find it on uh bit shoot. You can find it in a bunch of places still. Um, but if you haven't seen it, if you go and find it and watch it, what I would say about that piece is that it was very, very carefully done. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no major accusation made against anyone. It wasn't libelous. Uh, it wasn't slander. 
Um, it, and it wasn't it wasn't loose on facts. If anything, it was uh, restrained in terms of the amount of content we had that we could have put into that story that we actually removed just to be careful uh, and to treat it as as carefully as possible. Um, the interesting thing about it is that, of course, I was slandered for it. And, you know, he's a right wing conspiracy theorist, alt right, a term no one even uses anymore. How, how short was that term? <laughs> he was alt right conspiracy theorist and all this. It is crazy to see today how many people in media who stuck up for, the, you know, this is a debunked conspiracy theory, whatever that even means, right? Debunked by whom? Debunked in what way? Um, in fact, the, the whole point of my piece was to say none of this has been debunked. And this is where it actually comes from. It doesn't come from Macedonian sheep farmers. Most people don't even remember. That was what was being reported on CBS Network, on CNN. They were saying Macedonian sheep farmers had created this theory and they had spread it through the Internet. Absolutely <laughs> not true. So we did this story. And, and what I would say about it today is do I feel vindicated? No, um, I don't. And the reason I don't is because I know it's true. And that doesn't mean that I know the whole truth. I don't know the whole truth of it. Sure. But I know that what we reported on, which is that where this story comes from, is the fact that within John Podesta's emails, um, a group of pedophiles on 4chan said, hey, this guy's using code language. Now, does that mean that we know that John Podesta was using it for that purpose? No, I don't know that. But do I know that he was using language that pedophiles say, this is the language we use? Yeah, we were able to show that and, and demonstrate that. So it is interesting to me, though, the people who in media stood up and said, he's a liar, he's crazy, suddenly start a few years later um, disappearing and, and, and getting arrested for child pornography or for, uh, uh, you know, sex assault against children. Like, this is the stuff that these guys are getting arrested for now. Doesn't surprise me. I don't feel vindicated by it. I actually feel saddened by it mm -hmm. um, that that so many people were, were duped into it. And I'm also saddened because there is a whole true story buried in there that, you know, we talk about the term disinformation a lot. And I apologize. It's such a long answer. But we, talk, we, we use the term disinformation a lot. Real disinformation are not people online who sit around, you know, pontificating different conspiracy theories. That is not disinformation. Disinformation is when there are specific people who are paid, and they do this all the time, specific actors who are paid to go online and to throw out every crazy theory possible, the most ridiculous, outlandish things possible in order to muddy the waters so that when you do say, hey, there's something wrong here, or the fact that, you know, we, we just as, if, for example, in the, the Pizzagate story, able to verify there are specific symbols that are used by pedophile groups to identify each other. There are certain symbols that are used. So they muddy the waters with that, right? Oh, oh yeah, that means uh, Hillary Clinton is drinking children's blood. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. Come on. Yeah. Like nobody said that except for a few random people online. And I don't think they're random at all. I think they're intentionally there to muddy the waters and make it as crazy as possible because when everything sounds crazy, you can't believe anything. Absolutely. And uh, well, first of all, thank you for clearing that up. You know, it that makes a lot more sense. I guess there was a misconception there. And I, how ironic, right? There was fake news about fake news. So uh, <laughs> certainly kind of interesting. But Reality Check, you know, the, the segment that you were doing was extremely viral. So that had to be a, a pretty large decision for them to uh, tamper with your contract like that. And, you know, the fact that they you came to the conclusion that the battleground was the Internet. I mean, that feels exactly aligned with the conclusions that we've come to. And there was a golden age of the internet there for a period of time. I would say social media golden age was probably between, oh, I don't know, 2010 to about 2015, 2016. And yeah, there was a lot of ground that we actually gained. So it makes sense why they had to, to hit the brakes. And we actually you know, had this confirmed more recently by uh, an individual named Mike Benz. I'm not sure if you're from, familiar with him or following him on Twitter. His Twitter recently blew, blew up, but he is a ex-State Department employee who's more or less confirmed that there was this concerted effort by the industrial complex, the, the censorship industrial complex that was largely created after the, the Trump election to uh, hamper the reach and to turn down the volume for organizations like ours. So, you know, this, again, it, it aligns with uh, everything that we are saying and everything that we suspected, right? I mean, the Twitter files confirmed a lot of that and, and shortly after uh, the Facebook files as well. 
I don't really want to spend too much time on this though, because it is a topic I'm sure that you've exhausted over the years, mm-hmm. but definitely guys go check out Ben's work on this topic. Check out the documentary. It is kind of telling that it's even still up on YouTube. It, it didn't violate any of their policies or terms of service. Nonetheless, I did want to talk about your recent January 6th docuseries with Larry Logan and, and maybe focus on that for a little bit because there's just so much to it. You know, it was very well produced. It was incredibly informative, easy to digest, which is important. And I must say, Lara is an excellent host. Well, the January 6th incident is incredibly important for not only the sanctity of law and preserving freedom. I would assume most of our audience who are mostly libertarian anarchists haven't really been following the J6 story super close. So with that said, can you explain who Ray Epps is? And uh, considering he has sued several people for defamation, has his legal team contacted Truth and Media with a cease and desist? Um, no, uh, to the, to the second question first, no, uh, we have not received a cease and desist. Uh, in fact, we have actually reached out to his legal team and requested interviews with them. Um, because we just, listen, we want to tell Ray's story. We'd like to be able to interview him and, and talk to him. Sure. We're not avoiding him on any level. Um, and we're not attempting to defame him. We have a lot of questions about his role on January 6th. Uh, as well as the role of others, by the way, that we've also highlighted in the reporting, mm-hmm. um, and, and exactly what was their role, why were they there, and we are also curious, as I think many people are, about why he was treated so differently than the vast majority of protesters on January 6th. Um, when when there are protesters, as we've highlighted in this latest episode that came out, who touched a, a, a big Trump sign, there was a big Trump sign with a, a aluminum frame around it, that was moved and virtually everyone on video who has touched that sign right. has gone to jail. Right. And in some cases, three months, six months, and in some cases, several years. If you touch this sign, because it was, it was uh, claimed to be used as a weapon against police, if you touched it, those people have been prosecuted. Well, Ray Epps not only touches it, he puts his hand on it, he motions with his other hand to move it forward towards police, and he pushes it mm-hmm. into police. He has not faced any charges until September of this year. Fascinatingly, it was not until we started doing reporting on this issue that suddenly and quietly the Department of Justice did finally decide to charge him with a misdemeanor crime. He has not had any time in jail. He has served no time in jail. He was charged with a misdemeanor crime um, of essentially, um, and and I don't want to get it wrong here so that he can claim that I defamed him. But so you have to watch the episode to see exactly what the charge is. But it's a very, very minimal charge, especially in comparison to other people who were there that day who did what seems to be far less, mm-hmm. far less, especially when we're talking about ginning up the crowd. Remember, the J6 committee and, and the Department of Justice claimed that this was an ins- insurrection. And if they really believe it was an insurrection, if they really, truly believe it was an attempt to overthrow the government and to seize control of the government and seize control of power on January 6th, why have they not charged with any crime until September of this year the one man who's on video January 5th telling protesters to go into the Capitol. The crime that they claim was an attempt and and evidence of an attempt to overthrow the government and seize control of power going into the Capitol. Most of the people who have actually been charged on January 6th were charged with trespassing. That's what they were charged with. They were not actually charged with uh, an attempt to overthrow the government. They were not actually uh, charged with, with sedition or treason. They were charged with trespassing. That's what most of them have been hit with charges with. And yet when you hear it on TV, when you hear the media talk about it, they talk about storming the Capitol. They talk about the overtaking of the Capitol. They talk about it as if it was an attempt to grab the the, the seat of power in this country. Yeah. Well, the one guy who's on video the night before telling people to grab that seat of power manages to slip off the FBI most wanted list. He disappears quietly from that list. Um, in, in last year. And then all of a sudden, you know, like I said, until we start investigating him, had faced no charges, been charged with nothing. Now, all of a sudden he's got a misdemeanor. Fine. So he's got a misdemeanor. So we would love to talk to Ray Epps and understand his background and how he's been used. But I would say this to most of the libertarian anarchists who listen to this show, and, and many of you are familiar with me and you're familiar with my work, you know, going all the way back to my reality check days in Cincinnati, I was one of the first, if not the first 
television reporter to start talking about the FBI's use of entrapment Mm -hmm. and confidential informants and confidential human sources, CHS, in order to create crimes, supposed crimes, to create thought crimes, and to create um, claims of an attempt to commit an act of terror. And then they would come in at the last minute, sweep in at the last minute and stop the act from happening. I'll give you an example. We we use this example that I reported on back in 2012 during Laura's latest piece. Going back into 2010, there was a group of so-called anarchists in Ohio uh, near the Cleveland area. And this group, they were part of Occupy Cleveland at the time. Um, they decided they were going to blow up the Cuyahoga County Bridge in Ohio. So the FBI steps in, there are six of them, arrest them all, they charge them all with terrorism and and this attempt to blow up a bridge. But then in court, when they have their trial, what comes out? What comes out is that none of these six people actually came up with this idea. Mm -hmm. They were approached by somebody who recruited all of them. Turns out, of course, he's an FBI informant. And the FBI informant, what does he actually do? He's the one who says, hey, we shall blow up a bridge. Hey, I'll pick the bridge. It'll be this one. Hey, nobody has any explosives. Guess what? I can get some explosives. He he comes up with the day, the time, the location. I'll bring the weapons. You guys just show up. And so six people show up to blow up a bridge. None of them had planned to blow up. None of them had ever considered blowing up before. And none of them had the ability to blow up. But all of them get arrested. All of them go to trial and all of them go to prison for having attempted to blow up a bridge. And the FBI says we thwarted a terror attack. That would have been right here on homeland soil by a group of Occupy Cleveland because that's how good we are at our job when in fact they were the ones who created the crime. And it has happened so many times, dozens and dozens of times. Back in 2012, I reported that between 2001 and 2010, in the first nine years of the war on terror, so-called war on terror, what you find is that in almost half of the cases where the FBI brings a case to trial where they have been able to thwart a terror plot, In half of those cases, there was an FBI informant who created the plot that they thwarted. So that's, I think, part of what we see happening with January 6th. If if you say January 6th isn't a story that interests me very much, especially as a libertarian anarchist, what you need to be aware of is that January 6th is a very important story because it isn't about Trump supporters. It is about the continued behavior of a Department of Justice and deep state entities like the FBI and others who for decades create the, the, the crisis that they then seize power and say we must thwart and that's why we have to be a bigger agency and we have to get more money and we need more surveillance power and more authority because they keep creating crimes for them to stop so they need to be big enough to stop the next crime that they need to create. And it's an insane system and we watch it happening over and over. What makes January 6th unique in my in my mind, because as you, as you know, Jason, this is something I've talked about for a long time. Sure. But one thing that makes January 6th different to me is that this is the first time that we have seen the deep state pull this against such a high profile entity. Mm-hmm. And when I say high profile, I'm talking about a sitting president at the time, because that's what all these charges against him in these different court cases around the country against Trump are. Whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump, Trump was not attempting to overthrow the government on January 6th. That was not happening. I was there at the Capitol on January 6th, did not go inside for anybody from the FBI who's listening. Uh, and, and I have video, fortunately, of where I was the entire time. Nice. But, um, you know, I was there. And when you're there, it was very clear what was happening. The people who were there were not there to overthrow the government. They were there because they were angry and felt that the election had been stolen and and had been rigged. The reality is, is that there were people within that crowd who were there specifically for the purpose of ginning this up. We have seen this playbook by the FBI and other actors for years. They did it against, as I mentioned, the Occupy Cleveland anarchists, who, by the way, probably didn't have two nickels to rub together to get themselves a lawyer and protect themselves. Mm -hmm. We saw this happen with a a group called, I believe, the, the, the... uh, Brooklyn Six or something in New York, and it was six homeless guys who were recruited to blow up a synagogue. The FBI came in and arrested them all and said that they were going to uh, try to kill a bunch of Jews by blowing up a synagogue because they were black Muslims. Well, they were they were black homeless guys. They didn't have the ability to blow anything up. They were offered $20,000 a piece to be a part of this by an FBI informant, and the judge at their sentencing said it was there was absolutely no question that the only crime that was born here, she said, was born in the minds of the FBI. These men did not have the ability, the wherewithal, even the intelligence to carry this out. And so what we've seen it happen for years and years and years against 
and I, and forgive me how I say this, but against lower level people in society, people in society who don't have the ability to speak up or defend themselves and have no one who really is an advocate for them. That's how this works. You test it on those people for years and then you keep testing to higher and higher levels. January 6th in my mind is the highest level so far where this same playbook was run by the deep state. We've seen it happen many times before. Yeah, that's the famous line. FBI foils, FBI terror plot, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they do. They often go after like yeah. mentally diminished people and children and um, like a lot of times autistic kids and, and they'll get them to try to plan things. And they, these people would have no resources to get any of this stuff. And the FBI just grooms them all the way along. And uh, I, I got to admit, I was one of those people who like, I mean, I saw January 6th and I saw what the what it was going to be used for. Right. They started comparing everybody like January 6th was like a new 9-11. They yeah. We saw what they were going to do with it in, as, in regards to domestic terrorism and, and like the clinching of the, the state's fist on on people who, you know, challenged the status quo. And um, but that's as far as I kind of got. I went with it. I'm one of those, you know, the, those anarchists that kind of like there's bigger fish to fry. We need to see how they're they're, uh, you know, how they're going to use it to, uh, you know, take away more rights. And that's what we did. <clears throat> that's what we reported on in the beginning. But um but after watching this docuseries, I got to say, man, it's it's opened my mind to so much of this shit. They had a they had a woman in there. She was like an oath keeper. She's 70 years old or something. And she pointed out like the disparities but that uh, between some of the people that were arrested. She mentioned like a, a grandmother who was taking a selfie in front of the Capitol is rotting in jail. Right. And Ray Epps, who's on video saying we need to storm the Capitol like literally said storm <laughs> yep. and, 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 you know, that's the narrative that the media ran with right after that. Right. So he was, he, not only did he not go to jail, but even when he, when he was charged, the charge was disorderly or disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds, which I'm not right. even sure what that was being that he didn't enter the, the Capitol at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, he, he wasn't charged with incitement. He didn't have to go to jail. He didn't even have to go to court. He was able to plead guilty over a Zoom meeting, right? Like, the, the special privileges granted to this man, and he's removed from the FBI list, like you had said earlier, while there's a dead dude still on it, right? Yes. <laughs> the, yes. the, the, this guy's been granted so much privileges, you know, like this whole entire time. I mean, if he's not a Fed, what is what could possibly be a logical explanation as to this treatment that he's received over the last two years? Yeah, exactly. I think if, if you're watching it, you would say there's no way. And as you said, the one thing that's great about this series is, is, you know, in this uh, last episode that we ran, so there's a three part sub series in it about Ray Epps. So I encourage everyone to go watch all three parts. It's really worth your time because we released video. You mentioned the storm, the Capitol that no one had ever seen before. We were actually mm -hmm. able to find um, this, this video that had never been run before where he says he thinks he's off camera. He, you know, kind of hides his voice, he but he it. says, we need to, we're going to storm the Capitol. That's the plan. It is interesting that the next day that is the word, as you pointed out, the word that was used all across media, they said, the, you know, they've stormed the Capitol. So that, that particular term that he used. And so, listen, that could be coincidence. It could be coincidental that he just happens to use the exact word that uh, was used by every major media organization in the country 24 hours later. But it certainly seems suspicious. And then when you start adding into it everything else. But, but it's also important to mention that Ray Epps is not a lone character in this. If Ray Epps were the only one, that would be strange. But he's not the only one. As we point out in, in this last episode, there are um, multiple people, three, four different people that we have been able to pinpoint who managed to slip by and not be charged. And also, in some cases, were at one time on the FBI's list and quietly removed from the FBI's list. And, and at least now there are some members of Congress. We interviewed Congressman uh, Barry Loudermilk, who's from here in Georgia, where I am about this and he is working to investigate these people and find out who they are. Why are these people, were they were they police? Were they, you know, uh, undercovers? Were they feds? What was their role? There's one guy that we were able to find who had an earpiece and he had a handgun on him, right? Which it appears to be from what we can see of it uh, under his coat, it appears to be, uh, you know, a, a military um, weapon that he's carrying. It's a kind of a, a military standard handgun. 
he was charged with nothing. He's the only person, the only single person that we have found so far who had a weapon on them, an actual weapon. You know, they'll say things like, oh, people were carrying flags. Those are weapons. Okay, but they're not. (laughs) Those were not weapons. This guy guy has a a handgun on him, and he tries to hide it under his coat, but you can plainly see uh, that he has it with him. So he's been charged with nothing. And the FBI took him off their most wanted list. And then there's another woman who's also seen, she's referred to as the female Ray Epps, a woman who's telling everyone to go into the Capitol and doing the same thing, not going in herself, sitting outside on January 6th, but telling people when to go, telling people to go in, telling people to push forward. Like we see this happening over and over. And this is, this is a huge problem. I don't care if you don't trust the government, right? I don't care if you believe that the government would never do this. People need to watch it with their own eyes and say, look, if government officials are in the crowd and government officials are the ones, law enforcement are the ones who are ginning people up or telling people, it's what it appears to be, go in or telling people push forward or telling people keep going as they're getting close. That can't be just seen as, well, these people were a bunch of insurrectionists and they're getting what they deserve when they're sitting in solitary confinement. And as you mentioned, there are people who are sitting in solitary confinement to this day who don't even know why they're there, who never even went into the Capitol, but they were spotted on video because they were out in front of the building. And yet these people who were ginning people up and telling them to commit these these so-called crimes, um, nothing happens to them. It's, it's, it's really, I think, uh, something that, again, we have to pay attention to because of the fact that, yeah, you can say, look, we know that governments do this. Yes, but if they are allowed to do it with impunity, yeah, the situation just gets worse and worse and worse. I think uh, one of the biggest red flags to me is like, what are the chances that Ray Epps would also live in the same city as Baked Alaska and was showing up to these same Stop the Steal rallies while he was taking pictures of Baked Alaska? And I guess for our audience who isn't familiar with Baked Alaska, he's a social media media MAGA influencer, apparently had a a fairly large uh, following, and he ended up being targeted by the feds as well uh, for his participation on J6. And not to mention uh, the footage of Ray Epps showing up at this Stop the Steal rally um, and taking pictures of Baked Alaska. That footage, if I'm remembering correctly, that live stream was actually memory hold and had to be extracted by experts from an archive. So something about that doesn't seem right to me. It seems very fishy. And not to mention, you know, we might never really know who Ray Epps is, if he's indeed a Fed. Of course, you know, the intelligence agencies don't really admit these types of things. But I guess for us at the Free Thought Project, we've been saying from the beginning that J6 was likely an inside job. I mean, there was footage going viral starting the very next day on January 7th, showing numerous police officers allowing protesters into the Capitol, letting them through the gates, opening up the doors for them. Now, of course, you know, we can't really know for sure how many of these cops were just sympathetic to the protests and the movement and and maybe, you know, how many were possibly instructed to do something like this, but it wouldn't be too far outside the boundaries of reality to believe something like this was orchestrated to a large degree simply to amplify this whole right-wing domestic terrorism extremist narrative. Uh, The Biden administration seems to be kind of focusing on since the beginning of Biden's presidency Even at one point, we were told that several officers were killed during the incident, and that didn't turn out to be true, which you covered in the docuseries. Uh, But in the second installment of the Fed Surrection videos, uh, near the end, it was hinted that there was a cover-up. What do you think was the biggest cover-up during the investigation? And do you think this was all in an effort to push the domestic terrorism threat? So again, last question first. Yes. (laughs) I think that's an easy one. (laughs) <laughs> um, look, I think if you if you look at what the language has been, what has the rhetoric been from this White House, um, they have been pushing this idea of, uh, you know, white supremacy, um, you know, homeland terror from day one, yep. um, which obviously, you know, they had a they had a great quote unquote case for. Um, so here's the problem. The problem is that. When the the White House has said this, the administration keeps saying that this is this is the problem. But we know that none of that, if if you just look back historically, and I'm not talking about a hundred years ago, I'm talking about in the last thirty years, that we see 
this same playbook is run and run and run. This is like watching, you know, I'll give you a, a sports analogy here. It's like watching my favorite team, the Dallas Cowboys, especially <laughs> in the last few years. They run on first down, they run on second down, they're third and eight, they throw, they miss, they go out. Right. That's that's what the, their their offense looks like. And you're like, guys, you need a different playbook. This is terrible. Like I, I'm sitting on my sofa. I know exactly what you're going to do every single down. Finally, this year, they do look better. But anyways, um, the point is when you run the same play over and over and over, it becomes very easy to, to, to call it in advance. Right. That's all this administration does. But it's not this administration. It's every administration for the last 40 or 50 years in this country runs the exact same playbook because we all know that it's it's uh, the same party, uniparty that's in control. The reality is, is that they had this plan for some time because the talk of white supremacy and, and domestic terror and all that has long preceded, long preceded Joe Biden as president. It goes all the way back to around 2013, 2014, during Obama's second term. In fact, a lot of this stuff was coming up during Obama's second term. A lot of the terminology was being used at that time. And so I, I believe that, again, don't have to be a Trump fan or not. It's not about, about whether Trump's a good president or not. But Donald Trump was not the deep state's choice for president. Sure. Donald Trump accidentally became president. They did not think he was going to become president. Nothing, nothing should have allowed that to happen. Every single thing that the, I believe that the deep state was trying to do, the FBI was trying to do, we see that in their text messages to each other about him. They did not think he was going to become president. I do not believe that even on the, the night before the election, no, not only did no one believe he was, I don't think he believed he was going to be president. I'm completely <laughs> honest with you. I think that the world was shocked when suddenly he he wound up president. And so what happened is that everything that Biden has done in the last few years was supposed to have been done by Hillary Clinton, and she just didn't get a chance to do it. She she missed the window. And so you have a, a cycle, right, that's a predictable playbook cycle that's been running since really the mid-90s. And politically, we keep trending in the same direction. Everything's happening the same way. Nothing ever changes. It's why there's been just so much dissatisfaction uh, with this uniparty of Republicans and Democrats that are the same thing. But all of a sudden, when Trump got in, and I'm not even saying Trump was a good president. I'm saying when Trump got in, it disrupted the system that was moving in a particular direction. And when that happened, it it caused a lot of, of disruption in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is that it delayed and it postponed what I believe was supposed to have happened around 2016, which was supposed to be the new domestic Patriot Bill, right? And Patriot Act. The Patriot Act that was, you know, formerly was supposed to have only been used, uh, you know, overseas and to protect the country was now going to be internalized and used here. And so that's where, where they've tried to move with everything. But Trump slowed that down. Then when Biden comes in, everything was already in place. Now, here's something you guys may not know about. And I'll, and I'll share it here. We're working on something about this as well. But, you know, during um, right before COVID, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the the and I'm going to get the, the term wrong here, but it was something like the uh, Operation 201 or something to that effect. You know, what I'm talking about that was a. Uh, Mickey Willis covers it at the beginning of Plandemic, but basically it was a scenario that was run through by the World Health Organization a few months before COVID. This is like in the, the middle of 2019. And so you, the World Health Organization sponsors this event, and basically they run through, it's like a war games, for what happens if there's a worldwide pandemic that suddenly emerges and here's all the things we're going to do and here's how we're going to lock everyone down and here's how we're going to force everyone to wear a mask. And, and at the beginning of the pandemic, he's actually showing video. It's not, it's not a reenactment. He shows video from this ridiculous, almost comical-looking uh, war game scenario that was played out a few months before. And if you go through and watch what they claim in this, literally every international response from the WHO and the UN and, and the United States, a lot of these different countries around the world, Western Europe, they all, they all played this out exactly to how this war game scenario was run. Again, um, if you don't believe me, go watch at least the first, you know, 30 minutes of Plandemic and you'll understand this scenario and how it played out. Now, the reason I bring it up is because uh, we have been actually notified about the fact that right before the election, in the middle of 2019, the feds and 
did ran an interagency war game scenario for what happens if there's an attempt to overthrow the election after the election and ran through a scenario in which people showed up at the Capitol and tried to storm and take the Capitol. I'm not kidding you. And so they run through this entire scenario and what would our response be and how would we deploy you know, these resources and how would we deploy these troops? My understanding of this scenario is that when they ran through different scenarios, they came to a conclusion, okay? And the conclusion was that if you ran through these scenarios and you brought in the National Guard, the National Guard would all side with Trump because they're all a bunch of Trump supporters and they're all a bunch of, of uh, people who fit his demographic. And so the National Guard wouldn't support the, the Capitol Police and they would help overthrow the government. That was the conclusion, right, of all these interagency war games scenarios. Now, what is, what is the significance of that? Uh, uh, the only significance I see is I can tell you one fact, not theory, one fact about January 6th. And that is that on January 6th, the National Guard was called for and they refused to deploy them to the Capitol. Huh. There is video, lots of video of the Capitol Police saying, why is the National Guard not here? Why have they not brought them in? Go back and check the record. Check the record. And what you'll find is that there is one of the big... Con um, kind of uh, complaints about and contention points about January 6th was the fact that the feds would not call in the National Guard because if they had called in the National Guard, then these folks would have never made it into the Capitol. There would have been a large enough, a large enough um, um, contingency of National Guard troops on the ground that nobody would have ever made it into the Capitol building. And that doesn't mean they would have started tear gassing people and attacking them. They just would have come and provided physical support and kept them out. And the reality is the majority of the people, the vast, vast majority, were not trying to get into the Capitol. So that it, would be, it would have been no problem to stop them. As you pointed out, rightly, there were police moving barriers and telling people to come through. Mm -hmm. They open doors and tell them to come through. They're moving them into the Capitol building. Were those, were those corrupt police? I don't know that they were corrupt. Were they being told to do this? I don't even know if they're being told to do it. Maybe they were complying. Maybe they didn't know what to do. Maybe they were trying to get along with the crowds to not have problems. I'm just telling you, standing out there that day, it was not a violent crowd. They were not tearing things down. They were not destroying things. And if you had had National Guard there, they never would have entered the building. But National Guard was not called. And I'm just telling you that in these war game scenarios that have been played out in advance, in those scenarios, they agreed to not bring out the National Guard because in the scenarios where they did, they thought the National Guard wouldn't side with them. I don't think that the National Guard would have sided with Trump at all in that. They would have stood there no. and then the right, you know, the right wingers would have just respected them and stopped. I, th I think that's how that would have played out, right? So is is that the reality though? No, I mean meaning well, is that the reality they didn't want? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Instead they spent they spun a false reality and we're having memorials every year on January 6th for the fallen officers, right? Right, who never died. <laughs> officers and not a single officer died that day. The only person that died that day was uh, Ashley Babbitt, and and but yet there's news headlines that run every January sixth about you know the 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 memorial for fallen officers, and oh. I mean uh, as we all know, Brian Sicknick was it was falsely claimed that he was hit with a uh, uh, with a fire, with a fire extinguisher and, yeah. and died, but he, he died of a, a heart attack or a stroke the next day. <clears throat> they still try to blame it on that on January sixth. They were like, well, the stress from January sixth likely caused you know his death but uh i mean which can't be proven and it maybe maybe it maybe it did but uh that's not neither here nor there but like back to the domestic terrorism push which you know what was our what we really focused on right after january 6th because that's like the government's modus operandi right they they create the problem and then mm -hmm. they force the solution and and a lot of the population accepts it because they see the problem and for the years following January 6th, the left cheered it on, right? They were, they loved the, to watch all the different the prosecutions of all the people who participated in it and walked into the Capitol and did absolutely nothing wrong, you know, like the, like Jacob Chansley, uh, the, the QAnon shaman, right? He was, he had a tour guide with him that was just walking yeah. around the, the Capitol, but they still cheered it on. Nevertheless, forgetting history that they were targets of very similar programs throughout the last just decade. Right. Yes. And then then we saw this year um, with uh, Cop City uh, that will 
we warned the year before last that uh, they were going to, that the feds were going to use the Patriot Act's material support provision to target Americans with the Patriot Act because of January 6th, citing, citing the need because of January 6th. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, um, in Atlanta this year, they uh, they targeted the left with it. Mm-hmm. And it was when they had um, hundreds of people protesting Cop City in, yes. in Atlanta. They were like that 200-acre property where they were going to make like a police training ground or whatever. Still make They it. arrested dozens and dozens of people citing this exact provision that was used to, to uh, that was like brought into effect after January 6th so they could go after the left. <laughs> The, yep. the the short memories of Americans and their partisan cognitive dissonance leads to this every single time, man. Like the now the, the you know we have the left cheering on the Trump supporters getting arrested. Now the now the those very same left people are getting arrested. Like, what do you think that that is that causes people to be able to to forget that? The federal government does not have their intentions in mind whenever these these uh these tyrannical orders are, are coming down from the top like that. So I think that the media is a big part of it. And I think that kind of the um the marriage between media and politicians and, and those that deep state apparatus um has been very successful at creating essentially two teams, right, in this country. And that's the way people see themselves. They see themselves as this is my team and, and it's okay what happens um, as long as my team wins. And, and so as long as people have this tribalism where they don't see each other as, as valuable as individuals, nor do they see the fact that if someone is allowed to, to beat you or steal from you or take from you or be unjust in your life, then they can also be unjust in my life. Until I can see that, then we're, we're totally lost. The problem is, is that no one today is allowed to see that because we're constantly put pit into teams against each other. And that's why the left-right paradigm is so damaging. Because if you're on the left, you say, well, as long as it's happening to people on the right, you know what? It's justified. It's okay. Because those are bad people, right? So what we've done is we've dehumanized each other in this country. And again, the media is a huge part of that, dehumanizing uh, everyone on the other side. And, and it's very successfully done. You know, Fox does it on the right, where they look at everyone on the left and they dehumanize them. And then everyone else who's in media who's on the left, they do it by looking at the right. They dehumanize them. And so the more dehumanizing I am to your side, the more okay it is for you to dehumanize my side. And so we, we build this this kind of um, hatred for each other that then allows people to say, well, as long as my team has power, then I'm safe without realizing that these people aren't on your team. They're not on your side. They don't care about you. They only use you as a useful idiot in order to seize more and more power over you. Mm-hmm. They're not on your side. Now, I think most of your listeners know this, right? That's why they consider themselves libertarians and or anarchists, because they say, I'm not on either team. I don't want to be on either team. But we need more of the country to feel that way. We need more people to recognize that this is a system that is completely fake. And so we're we're convinced that, you know, there's this this dueling power, right? These dueling powers against each other, left versus right, 50-50, and, and one just slightly gets an edge here and one slightly gets an edge here. And we see over and over how this plays out, which is that those who are in power, it's really that's those are the teams. It's the powerful versus those who don't have power. Those are the teams. And, and it's this small group of people who consider themselves elite because there are actual elites. And then there are these people who think they're elites and they're not. But they 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 want to be. And they want to be so badly that they continue to, to kiss the ring of those who are truly powerful. And then they continue to impose that will on the rest of us. And so those are the teams. And, it, and as soon as you start to recognize that, it creates disruption. So there are, again, there are different moments that we can look back even in recent history where that happens. The Occupy movement's a great example of that. Yeah. Occupy movement happened right around the same time as the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement on the right said, hey, there are all these people who are in power and they're not taking care of us. So we need to remove them and put people who are like us in power. The Occupy movement happens at the same time. They're just on two different sides of the so-called political spectrum. And the way you, you disabled those was really by by creating new classes of enemies. There's a fascinating study um, that goes back and looks at the number of times that the New York Times, Washington Post, every major media outlet in the country started talking about race in this country and made race this massive issue again. It happened after the Occupy Wall Street movement. That's when it happens. And you can look back historically and you can look at the actual 
the, the, the algorithmic record of the New York Times and the Washington Post and major publications now wanting to talk about race and the number of times they mention race in this country. And it all started after the Why? Why would it start after Occupy Wall Street? Because you had a group of people who said it's us, everyone else, versus these people who run all these banks and control all the money in the country. Yep. Well, you got to change that. They got to pit them against someone else. So we started pitting everyone against each other based on their skin color. Well, if you're if you're black, all the white people hate you. Hey, if you're white, then you're you're privileged, and so your life is better than these people. And so if you're brown, nobody wants you in this country. And they start pitting everyone against each other, and and so we all start fighting about race. Think about today. I mean, Jason, I, you and I are, are old enough, right, that we can think back to a time when. People didn't really talk much about race anymore. And we were right. almost living in a time, I feel like, especially when I was a, a teenager and a young adult, at a time that was almost felt like it was post-racial. We weren't really talking about race anymore. And now it's crazy because I have I have kids of my own, and especially my kids who are right around 20 years old, they think that race is like the biggest thing in the world. They talk about it constantly. And I'm like, how, how are we talking about something that in my lifetime – no one was talking about like in the, the, you know, nineties. Yeah. There's some of that. And there's, there's still racial tension in some places, but that's not a major issue of, of American life was not race. And today it's like the defining issue over everything. So I'm just saying you've got to watch out for the groups that, that keep pitting us against each other on every level, except for on the level of those who have power and those who do not, because there's an increasingly large group of people who don't have power. And if those people would turn around and realize that's what's happening, that group would be unstoppable in terms of its political power and size. Here, here, man. Yeah. Excellent answer, Ben. I'm probably going to have to uh, put in a little sample of an applause right there. I think <laughs> that was great. And, uh, you know, I, I think you know, not that I quote Morgan Freeman very often, but, you know, he said something like, if you want to end racism, stop talking about it. And I don't know if it's quite that simple, but I think there is something to that quote. And you know, I don't think it's just the media, although you know, media plays a big part of it. And I know you know this, Ben, so I'm not trying to correct you, but social media certainly amplifies the disinformation and not just the disinformation, but the divide as well. And that's something that you know has sure. exactly yeah, been played uh, against us since the Occupy Wall Street movement. That's a, a great... Uh, observation ban because you know it wasn't just racism that's all of a sudden turned into the the focal point of uh, our everyday lives it's also the social justice causes it's uh these trans you know the trans movement the trans issue uh, it, it's even gone as far as our own sexual preferences and our diets, you know, like now we're divided. Are you a meat eater? Are you a vegan? I mean, it's gone completely off the rails. And, you know, that is a reason why I, I wanted to get into sovereign a little bit and, and, and talk about that, because I noticed as late as August of last year, the media, uh, specifically Axios, were still trying to associate you with being a Russian disinformation propagandist. <laughs> And I also couldn't help but notice that many of the videos that you once had posted for Truth and Media on your YouTube uh, now say that the videos are unavailable. So, you know, it's all, again, incredibly ironic to me because you were one of the original fact checkers. You were doing fact checks on your mm -hmm. reality check segment long before fact checkers ever existed. So it, That's it's, right. it's pretty clear that they're here to control the narrative. Uh, you know, apparently they didn't like that you were doing these fact checks on them. And it feels like maybe that's part of your departure from the mainstream media affiliates. It wasn't just a creative decision, but a move for survival and, and, and you know, not being in an environment that's incredibly hostile to outside actors who disrupt carefully crafted media narratives. And I think all of us in this space, to a certain degree, you know, feel this pressure to conform. And if you don't conform to their narratives, then you run the risk of being erased and deleted from the Internet. And, you know, if I had to speculate, I would assume that's why you created this this new social media platform called Sovereign. And, uh, you know, it's not only to give content creators a place where they can thrive without censorship and walking on eggshells, but to to a certain degree to ensure your own brand and image can survive on some level outside the, the tentacles of, you know, the big tech information gatekeepers. So, you know, for our audience, you might not be familiar with Sovereign. But it describes itself as a platform that seeks to create an uncensored news and entertainment platform using disruptive technologies. So it has been, uh, what, two years now? I think it launched roughly two years ago. Are you pleased with the growth it's had over the past two years? And are there any big plans for it in the future? 
Well, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful to everyone who's on the platform as we continue to build it out. So right now, you know, we're it's still a very small platform, especially, especially in comparison to, you know, the, the, the big ones that are out there. Um, what I would say is that I have a, a longer term vision for it that is less about needing it to be a large platform right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. and more about it becoming the most secure platform in the world. That's, that's the goal. And so there's a lot of work that's being done behind the scenes technologically on it because look, we're li living in a moment right now. We started sovereign about the time that I realized that, we, you know, there was going to be all the censorship. We started to launch an MVP at the time when, um, you know, Twitter was still a mess and so many people were being censored in so many locations. Yeah. Um, you saw, you know, sites like parlor that came along and, and parlor yeah. took on everybody and became the number one app in, on the app store, number one app in the world. And then they just, it disappears in a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so look right now, I'm just going to be as, as honest with you as I can. So right now, sovereign's growth is slow. And part of the reason for that is Elon Musk, um, Elon buying Twitter made a lot of people say, oh, Hey, we don't need an alternative. Look, Twitter's back. We can just mm -hmm. go there. And mm -hmm. that's cool. Like we post a lot of our stuff on X also. And I think it's great that Elon Musk is doing what he's doing with Twitter. What Elon Musk is not doing with Twitter is making it a secured platform. It continues to be completely susceptible to all the controls of Silicon Valley. Yeah. I don't know why he does that. He's a smarter guy than I am, so I'm sure he has his reasons, but that's what he's doing. And so what we have focused on with, with Sovereign is saying Twitter may not be there in the future, right? It may, it may vanish at some point. It may be taken offline also, and it may just so happen that it coincides around the time of an election. We'll see what happens. But what we want to do is we want to utilize the best technology out there to say, we're going to build the best platform, the most secure platform, because it may not be that anyone needs sovereign today, but they might need it in five years and they might need it in 10 years. When, when technology has changed and all of a sudden you can't see things on Twitter anymore or X or suddenly X, you know, again, is no longer available on your mobile device because Apple and Google completely control um, access to those, those avenues, which by the way, makes up for about 85% of all of X's traffic hmm. comes to a mobile device. So if they turn off your mobile device access, you can't access it anymore. So uh, I think they're, they're, uh, ways to to protect that. So what we've been trying to do with Sovereign is is really build it out technologically, utilizing blockchain technology, utilizing um, really uh, uncensorable technology, um, and putting us in a, a decentralized position to be able to again be the most secure platform. Not only do we want to be the most secure platform, though, the plan with Sovereign is to become a platform that that provides the technical assistance to existing other existing platforms and teaches them how to do it as well. So that's really what we're trying to do with it. You know, a lot of the goal here is a passion project about saying we're just going to create freedom and however people want to use that freedom, go for it and use it. But we, we want to create freedom and, and ensure it because it goes back to what we talked about before. If I can create freedom for you, then I'm ensuring my own freedom. If I can create technological freedom for you, I'm ensuring my own freedom. And if I won't create it for you, then I won't have it for myself. Right on, man. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. We're witnessing like a uh, a gradual societal shift, like towards this type of thing, like sovereign, right? Like where we saw over the last several years, uh, this major, you know, propaganda and censorship regime coming in and clamping its fist and trying to control the narrative and and the people don't the people have spoken, you know, they don't want it, right? Yeah. Um, so we're we're kind of nearing the uh, the end of our show here and. As our listeners know, we kind of like to end on a, a white pill uh, of, mm -hmm. of optimism. Yeah. So, Ben, I'd like to get your thoughts on on this critical shift that we're uh, observing right now, like including sovereign. So, right, we're seeing this gradual shift from major pushback of people who were fed up with this, you know, and especially as you just mentioned, like Twitter, right? Albeit disappointingly, so it uh, it seems to be illuminating these hidden truths, like the Epps story, right? Um, so in, in your view, um, what can we do to ensure that this like unveiling of information isn't just like a transient wave, but a continuing trend? Like after all, consistency, consistently shining a light is like the only way to dispel this darkness. Could you share your insights on how we can maintain this momentum and of, of and continue to push for this transparency? Well, I, th I think that and let me just say thanks again for letting me um, have some time here today. And I really do appreciate it, Jason. Um 
Looking forward, here's what I would say. I believe that truth has a long story arc. So we started the conversation about Pizzagate. I'll use that as an example towards the end here. Um, when I first was going to do the story, I called a, a really good friend of mine, um, one of my most trusted mentors. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I sent him the script. I said, there's a risk in running this story. And he agreed. And he and his wife talked about it. And they came back and I said, I want to know what you think. And uh, he said, I think you should do it. I think you need to do it. Um, after the story ran and we had all these, this blowback and all these problems, he called me and he was like, I'm so sorry I told you to do that. <laughs> I said, no, no, it's not on you. It's on me, right? But it's okay because I know it was it was right and I know it was the right story, yeah. right? And there were a lot of people in my life who for the next few years, super critical of it, and criticized it very heavily and, you know, how could you have done this and you were so dumb and you got duped and they were just super negative about it. And I was okay with that too, right? Because I knew that I had had told the truth. And what I what I see happening now and what I believe will be the case in five years and what will be the case in 10 years, but no matter what comes out about this story, I will know and others will know as well that the story that I told over time, it ages very well. The liars, the people who sit around and lie and and and, and deceive you in the moment and tell you a narrative that fits with, with what they want you to believe, their stories don't age well, right? Their narrative doesn't age well. Over time, you say, oh, that, that didn't really age well at all. Like, you just turned out to be a liar. You didn't know what you were talking about. What I would say to people is this. We're living in a really tough moment still in terms of information and trying to get information out there. As I mentioned, the, the time of the internet was much more exciting in 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a really exciting time if you were a content creator on the internet. Sure. The last few years have not been an exciting time. It's been a, <laughs> a wasteland, right? Yeah. It's been really, really hard to get information out and just being censored and, you know, the, the COVID time when everything is shut down and that's when the, the fact checkers were born, right? At the height of the most lies and the greatest deception come the so-called fact checkers, yeah. which were all part of that apparatus. But what I would say is this, um, keep telling the truth. Tell the truth to the people around you. Be honest with yourself. Um, stay inquisitive of it. And, and let's keep leaning into the truth telling. Because over time, if you want to be able to look back and have people say, well, who can I trust? Trust the person who told you the truth and it turned out to be the truth. And, and what we're seeing over and over now, there are so many people who are out there and they're, they're saying stuff for a couple days, couple months, sounds good. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's all... It's all wrong, mm. but we keep going back to the mainstream media is the only place in this country where you can consistently be wrong and still have a job, right? No matter what you say, you can, they, just, they, they keep you around because you continue to spread the lie. So where I'm optimistic is I believe that we have a generation of young people who are coming up behind us now who have no idea what truth is anymore. Like nothing, everything's relative to them. Nothing's true. It's all about fitting in a certain, you know, mindset or, or, um, kind of moment. So what I would say is uh, be honest, keep telling the truth, keep having integrity in what you do. And let's watch over time, those who are the liars, those who are the deceivers, let them be revealed and will be revealed for what we are. Excellent answer. I, I think that warrants a fuck yeah. So um, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I actually wanted to, that was going to be my last question, but I know we're, we're getting a little too close here on time, but I was going to ask if you had advice for journalists just starting off. So I think that actually covers. There you go. But I would have said. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, free thinkers. This episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. 
Thank you for your support, Freethinkers. And as always, thank you for listening. So, Ben, I, obviously you're on Twitter as Ben Swan underscore and Truth underscore in media. Uh, people could watch the new 14-part docuseries at truthandmedia.com. Where else can people follow you and what else would you like to plug? Um, you can also go to Sovereign, S-O-V-R-E-N dot media. And you can find my my channel there. You can follow me there. It's on there on the homepage. And so obviously there's a lot of content. Um, we've been trying to move over a lot of my stuff from over the years and sure. to put it in there. Um, so I encourage them to do that as well. And again, if you go to, um, you mentioned truthandmedia.com. Truthandmedia.com, if you go there, it's real easy to find everything. And I should mention, this is a plug, it is powered by Sovereign. So all of that content is being secured by Sovereign, even though it's on a different website. Oh, that's awesome. I did not know yeah. that. Cool. Yeah. Well, if I've learned one thing from this conversation, it's probably that if Capitol Police offer you a free tour of the Capitol, just say no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if police offer you anything, say no. Or say nothing. <laughs> okay. Good point. Well, Ben, you've long been a source of inspiration for independent journalists and alternative media like ourselves. Excellent work, excellent, excellent work with Truth and Media and your powerful January 6th docuseries. I highly recommend it to our audience. Definitely watch it, guys, and see what we are up against. Ben, we appreciate your time today, and thank you so much for your endless perseverance doing this work. Thank you, guys.